0: The 34th chapter of the book of Jeremiah is the place of our, where we'll focus this morning in the remaining moments that we have. In fact, the 34th through the 36th chapters is our text. I said last Sunday, if you remember, that the book of Jeremiah is difficult to understand because it's not written in chronological fashion. The writers of the Septuagint who translated the Old Testament Hebrew into into Greek for the Greek-speaking world discovered something different about the book of Jeremiah. That was that it was arranged according to themes. And these themes were were in what were called independent scrolls. And they were arranged according to themes with kind of antidotes of the life of Jeremiah dropped in between the themes, not in chronological fashion. The theme of this independent scroll, which comprises chapters 34 through 36, is the Word of God. A better uh, subtitle might be, The Word of God and Disobedience are the peril of disobedience to the Word of God. Here's the background. Jeremiah goes to King Zedekiah to warn him of the impending doom of the kingdom. The unspeakable, the unthinkable was about to happen. They're going to pull down the temple. They're going to level the walls of the city. They're going to destroy it. And they're going to carry people away into captivity and chains in Babylon. And so Jeremiah says to Zedekiah, You better heed the word of the Lord if you want to die in peace and not be carried away in captivity. History tells us that he did not heed the word of the Lord, and he was indeed carried away into captivity. But before he was taken captive into captivity, his sons were brought before him, and they were slaughtered before his eyes. And then his eyes were put out so that the last thing he would remember would be the brutal death of his sons. And so branded upon his memory was this horrible, brutal death, the last thing he saw with his eyes, the death of his sons. Jeremiah's not kidding. For there is something tremendously perilous about disobedience to the word of the Lord. Now, I want to show you something going on here in this text. There's really several factors involved in the disobedience to the word of the Lord. The first is a temporary obedience, a kind of a, a temporary response or obedience, which is, which is really no different than disobedience. And so I want you to read with me. Beginning at verse 8, we'll read through verse 11. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord after King Zedekiah had made a covenant with all the people who were in Jerusalem to proclaim release to them, that each man should set free his male servant and each man his female servant, a Hebrew man, a Hebrew woman, so that no one should keep them a Jew, his brother in bondage. And all the officials and all the people obeyed and entered into covenant with each, that each man should be free, verse 11. But afterward... They turned around and took back the male servants and the female servants whom they'd set free. Now, what's going on here is this: that there was a kind of a kind of a knee-jerk response that Zedekiah had in fear to the word of the Lord. And he began to he set in motion these reforms to set free the slaves in response to that fearful prospect of God's judgment upon him, but it didn't last long. As a matter of fact, any motivation that's motivated by fear really has no lasting effect. I mean, we make commitments in revival meetings sometime out of fear that really has no permanent lasting effect. It was true here. And so he took back his promise. He, he made a temporary promise to God he didn't keep. Gypsy Smith, born in poverty in London, raised by gypsies, converted in one of General Booth's revival meetings, made this profound statement. The angels in heaven must shudder to the tips of their wings at the broken promises we lay again and again at the feet of God there's nothing any more paralyzing to the work of God than all these broken promises, these half-kept promises. We lay again and again at the feet of God. It's enough to make the angels shudder. I had a man in my, in a former church that never came to church, never did anything for God. He had a little health problem, so he had to be in a hospital occasionally. So I'd go out to the hospital to see him. I'd walk in the door. He'd start in, oh, pastor, I had not been to church, but I'm going to be different when I get out of here. Man, if I can just get out of here, I'll be back at church. And that promise lasted about as long as the release papers at the hospital. Never did see him, but every time... I make these prom- made this promise to God in my hospital bed and I'm going to be different when I get out of here. I ask how many who is there among us who has not made the same promises unkept. All these broken promises, all these half-kept promises, we lay again and again at the feet of God. It's enough to make the angels shudder. Frederick Speakman in his book, *Loving*, Love is Something You Do, tells about an old derelict that, that lived in the town where he grew up. He kind of hung around the courthouse, an old alcoholic. They called him Governor Campbell. He said every revival meeting, they had a revival every August, two-week revival. He said every August we'd have a revival meeting. Old Governor Campbell would be the first down the aisle, make a decision. He'd shave, you know, and get dressed up. And, and he'd make these promises at revival, and it'd last about three weeks. Listen to how Frederick Speakman describes it. He said, before the cool gust of the autumn breezes sent the dead leaves scuttling like crabs across, across the courthouse lawn, Governor Campbell be back in character. And the people who kind of made fun of the spectacle would toss him a quarter and a an annoying smile, or they might say to their barber later as he stropped his razor to to a cadence that that kept time with his wisdom. That's the trouble with religion. Take old Governor Campbell, there he is drunk again. But you let the first revival hit town this winter and you'll know who will be the first to be be converted. That's the trouble with these half-kept promises we make in a fearful situation. In the dark, in the night, we make the promise. When the morning comes, we forget about the promise. And who is there that is not guilty of that? I think sometimes what we call prayer is is a soliloquy. Prayer is talking to God. A soliloquy is talking to yourself. Now Israel thought they were talking to God. They said, oh God, get us out of this mess. What they were doing was just addressing the situation. They didn't want God. And at the heart of all of it is an attempt to bargain with God. This is what they were saying. God, if you'll just get me out of this mess, I'll be better. The only problem with that is that, you, that God doesn't do business by barter. I heard a man tell that he is... Wife was in a hospital in the eighth floor in a hospital in New Orleans. She was struggling to live. He said, I went into her room, didn't know whether she was going to live or die. He said, I got down on my knees and I said, God, if you'll spare my wife's life, I promise you I'll be a better man from now on. I'll serve you. And God said, and the man said, God spoke to my heart there on my knees and said, you need to serve me whether your wife lives or not. He said, I'll never forget, I walked down the hall of that hospital, eighth floor, and I looked out. It was a cold, gray day, and I looked out over the city of New Orleans, and I said to God, God, I'll serve you whether she lives or dies. Though he slay me, yet will I serve him. And at the heart of this this temporary obedience is an attempt to con God. God, I, you know, I'll tell him whatever he wants to hear so he'll get me out of this problem. And we wrap all of these promises up in this verbiage and we promise God this, knowing that that's what God wants to hear, but we don't really mean it. Your kids ever do that? Hey, Dad, you're looking great. Boy, I love you you and Mom. I'll tell you, you're the greatest parents I've ever had. Man, you're wonderful parents. When they start that on me, I usually say, now let's cut the malarkey, you know. Let's cut the baloney, and let's find out what you want from me. That's what God is saying. You can cut all the baloney, and let's get down to business. What are you saying to me? What are you promising me? I mean, cut the malarkey, and let's get down to business. Well, some people can fool some of the people all of the time. And some of the people can fool all of the people some of the time. But judgment will reveal that nobody can fool God any of the time. Temporary obedience. There's something else going on here in this passage. And that is a deliberate disobedience that profaned his name. Now I want you to read verses 16 through 18. We won't have time to do that right right now, but you can check it and read it later. This is what it says. He said, you've profaned my name because you have disobeyed my word and you have disobeyed the covenant. You have profaned my name. It means to make common the uncommon. Now watch what happens here. He's saying, This is what you've done in disobedience. You have taken my name, which is uncommon, and have made it as common as dirt. God said, Be ye holy, for I am holy. The word means separate, it means holy other, it means distinctive. You have taken my name, which is distinctive and holy other, and you've made it as common as dirt. You know what he's saying? He's saying, "When the folks go away from the people of Israel, they're not saying, "Hey, what a God he is. what a God they, that Yahweh is." Wow, what a God is Yahweh." Well when they go away from the people of Israel, he says, they're saying, "Wow, this Yahweh, we heard so much about Yahweh. I mean, he's the talk of the nations, but he's no big deal. He's not any better than the stick we worship. He's not any better than the stone we bow down to. He's saying, this is your problem. You have made the uncommon common as dirt. The question is this morning, what do people say when they go away from you? Now, I'm not talking about all the trappings we have. I'm not asking you, do, do they go away from you saying, wow, what a, did you see that guy's religious t-shirt? You know, we got those. We got all the trappings. You can go to just about anybody's house. You see them on the walls and on the refrigerator. I'm not saying, I'm not asking. When they go away from you, do they, do they say, wow, did you see his bumper sticker? Honk if you love Jesus. I'm I'm not asking do they go away saying, wow, did you see their church? Isn't that a magnificent church? I'm asking you, when people go out of your presence, do they say, wow, what a God he has? Or have you profaned his name? Somebody said, and I agree with them, that, that profanity when it comes to the name of the Lord is not, does not take place in some bar room where we use the holy name of God and intersperse it with sewer talk. But we profane, we take the Lord's name in vain in church where the songs and the prayers and the sermons are not meant. Eldon Trueblood in his book, The Foundation of Reconstruction, says a profound thing. He said, blasphemy is not profanity, it's lip service. That's profanity. Profanity is to take God's name without conviction or urgency. It's to say I'm a Christian and not be excited about it. You take the name of the Lord in vain when you say I'm a Christian and you don't care if the world goes to hell or not. You take the name of the Lord in vain When you say Lord to Lord and don't offer yourself to Him, you take His name in vain. When things are more important than people, when serving, being served is more important than serving, when getting is more important than giving, that's when you profane His name. And God said, you've taken my name and you've profaned it, made it common. There's a third thing that happens in this text. There's a lack of loyalty to the word. and So in, verse, in chapter 35, he introduces the Rechabites. Now the Rechabites, these are strange people. They, they might be like somebody you'd see you know, going down a highway from here to Ada, you know, riding in a buggy. They, they didn't believe in, in, in living in houses, the Rechabites. Watch this. They didn't believe in drinking wine, and they didn't believe in growing vineyards. Uh-uh. And you ask them, why don't you believe in that stuff? And they say, well, our great-grandfather, ten times removed by the name of Jonadab, told us not to. And we don't know who he was, but he was, he was his granddad. A long, and for 200 years, watch, for 200 years, they lived under these customs and traditions and they wouldn't drink wine, and they wouldn't live in houses, and they wouldn't plant vineyards, uh-uh, because this grandfather told them not to. And so Jeremiah got all these Rechabites together, and he got all the officials of the city together, and he put wine before them, and he said, Now, you folks drink wine. And the Rechabites said, "Uh uh-uh, no way are we going to drink wine. Well, come on, you know, drink some wine. He said, uh-uh. Why not? Well, because Jonadab, whoever he was, told us not to. Now I want you to notice what Jeremiah is doing, a strange analogy. He's doing two things. He's showing that in Israel, folks live more by the customs of men than by the word of God. Now, they would obey this word of man, but they wouldn't obey God's word. That's not that strange? You tell them to do something, uh-uh, because Jonadab told us not to. Now, he's not commending the Rechabites. He's not even condemning them. He is showing that in Israel, that in Judah, they'll be more obedient to the word of a man than they will be to God. That sound familiar? I mean, you'll trust your friend. You'll trust your banker. Why not trust God? You'll trust, you'll believe your friend. You'll, you'll do things for your friend. Why not do, th- you know what God is saying? God is saying, all I'm asking is the same thing you would give to a man. And if you were to stretch that on out to its end, you watch this. It means that we will literally die we'll in a church a church will literally die because we'll follow tradition before we'll follow the word of the lord and so some guy comes into a deacons meeting with a fresh word from god and say hey i believe god is leading us uh uh-uh. uh and we'll look at some deacon uh, well uh uh-uh. uh he said we could he said not to we've never done it that way before we're not going to break tradition even though God says for us to. And over the grave of the dead church is erected the tombstone with the epitaph, we ain't never done it that way before. We're not going to change. You let God's word come powerfully, get up and move on. Uh -uh. We're bound by tradition. That's what's going on in Israel. And what else he's saying is this. He said, don't you throw stones at the Rechabites. At least they're loyal to something. Occasionally I hear a doorbell ring. I go to the door. I know immediately what's there, what's happening. Usually it'll be a man, a wife, his wife, a man, a woman. They'll have a big briefcase. And they'll pull this watchtower stuff out of that briefcase. I know right then I've got me some Jehovah's Witness on my doorstep. And I usually give them about 30 seconds of my time. Don't you knock the Jehovah's Witnesses until you've done the same thing. I'll tell you what, there's a whole bunch of us that have never rung a doorbell for the Lord. Isn't that the truth? And occasionally I hear, I see some guys riding around on, in town on their bicycles and they got these bow ties and, and their white shirts and they're riding around and they got their hair cut, you know, real short. I, I, I was out jogging the other morning and one year they ran over me. I know that there's... There are at least two of them in town. We call them Mormons. They're here on a mission assignment. They've given two years of their life to missions. Don't throw stones at the Mormons who are out doing a mission. Some of us wouldn't give two hours to that. And what God is saying to these to the to the to using this word, this illustration here this, this, uh, this picture this analogy saying Judah don't you get all worked up about the Rechabites because at least they've given their lives in loyalty to somebody's word have you? And there's one final thing here we need to point point out and that is the ultimate triumph of the word the ultimate triumph of the word now Jeremiah, called, he's in prison now, and so he calls his, his stenographer, his secretary, by the name of Baruch to come to him, and he dictates to him, he said, now I've got a word from God, I want you to write this down. And so Baruch wrote it down. He gave him this word from God, watch. And here's Baruch with this scroll, had the word of God on it, word got out. There's a new king now by the name of Jehoiakim, Zedekiah is off somewhere in exile, remembering the last thing he saw. And old Jehoiakim hears that there's a word from God that Jeremiah's put out. He said, I want to hear that word. And so Baruch comes to Jehoiakim and he reads the scroll in his presence. And Jehoiakim takes that scroll. He's sitting in his winter house, the Bible says, and there's a fire on the fireplace. He takes out his penknife and he rips that scroll to shreds. And he takes it and he throws it in the fire. Word of God is silenced. Mm -mm. Jeremiah calls Beirut back to him. He says, I hear my scroll was burned. Yeah, it was. He said, okay, take this down again. And so he gave him the same message. uh, God's got the greatest sense of humor. The Bible says, he said, now you take down what I told you before with some additional words. I don't know what those words were, but I got a pretty good idea. I think this is in the margin. I think what he told him to add was, now you add this. This is what happens to jerks when they cut up my scroll and throw it in the fire. Okay. And so he 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 got this, he got this scroll and, and he took it back because you see, God has the final word. The word of the the heavens and the earth may pass away, but the word of God abides forever. Somebody said that he speaks best who speaks last. Well, then he speaks best because he speaks last. Napoleon said, there is no God. So God decided there'd be no Napoleon. Voltaire one day said, One of these days they'll write extinct over the grave of Christianity. God must have laughed when he heard that. And one day, true story, Robert Ingersoll, the famous infidel, said in in 15 years, and he snapped his fingers, in 15 years there'll be no Christians. And 15 years later to the the, the year he said that, God snapped his fingers and said there'll be no Ingersoll because God has the final word. Along with receiving the word and believing the word comes a responsibility to the word. I heard William Elliott say this. William Elliott was a great pastor, great preacher, pastor of the First Presbyterian Church in Highland Park. And he said a year after they married, he and his wife went up to Mount Rainier up in Washington. and we, We've been there. It's just gorgeous. Some of you have seen that. It's a peak that stands 14,000 feet above sea level. And William Ed said they, they, they drove up a high of a, of a mountain path, a road up to a, to a uh, resort called Paradise Inn, 5,000 feet above sea level. And he got out and they, they, they visited around that, that resort. A lot of people there, he said. And he said, the couple they were with said, would you like to hike up about 1,000 more feet? They said, sure. So they hiked up about 1,000 feet. Now they're 6,000 feet above sea level, and they're looking down. And he said, we, we could see down at the, at the Paradise Inn. He said, there were hundreds of people milling around down there. He said, our friend, after we rested a while, said, let's hike up to the timberline another 1,000 feet. He said, wonderful. So they hiked up to the timberline. There the vegetation stopped and the wind howled and it was cold and the trees were twisted. And he said, while they were standing there in that rarefied air, he said, two guys came by with packs on their backs and uh, climbing poles in their hands and and they went past us and headed up. And he said, I asked my friend, where are they going? He said, well, they're going to the top. He said, they'll climb tonight to about a thousand feet from the top and they'll make camp and tomorrow they'll crawl on their hands and knees across the ice to the top. said, William Elliot, as I stood there looking down, he said, I thought, down there where it's convenient and it's conventional, there are a lot of folks, but on the top there are only two. At the top there are only two, but always two. You and God. Now there's going to be a last word that's spoken and that last word will be a word that God says. For the word of God will ultimately triumph. And the call of God is to a commitment that is not temporary or shallow, to a commitment that you indeed will be different if it means that you're going to have to crawl on your knees to get there. That's the call of God to the Jehoiakims of the world. Would you bow with me? Father, I thank you for the Word. And I pray that we will today obey the Word with a commitment that is willing to sacrifice because I pray in Jesus' name and for His sake. There are free invitations. Listen, please. One invitation this morning is to receive Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. The word of the Lord to you is that you are lost without Christ and separated from God for eternity and that the only solution to your problem, sin problem is in your faith in the finished work of Christ at Calvary. And so His word for you is to come trusting Him repenting of your sin, placing your faith in Jesus Christ. There is a word this morning to you, perhaps to come and place your life in the church. It's time now for you to do that. You've visited. God is leading you here. God wants you to do it. Or there's a word this morning that you are not living the life You've made promises you've not kept. You've offered, you've laid at the feet of God again and again, half kept, half broken promises. You want to come this morning to rededicate your life to Christ. Give your life to Him in a fresh and new way. These are the invitations. This is serious business. And so you'll prayerfully consider what God wants you to do while we stand, the choir sings you come.